Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is an attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. The Interesting Bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note perhaps even memorable, and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. Welcome back to the Interesting Bits podcast and part two of our Vikings special. When we started making the series Vikings, I was asked to come up with a family to base the series on. Fortunately, I'd just written a book on Alfred the Great, in which I'd written about some of the very first semi-historical Vikings to emerge from myth, Ragnar and his sons. Here's an extract. The threat from the Northmen had condensed into a person part man and part legend, and that person was Ragnar Lothbrok, Ragnar Leatherbreeches. Identifying any of the leaders of these early piratical warbands is a dangerous undertaking, but the regular appearance in Christian chronicles from around this time of at least the names of some of these shadowy leaders begins to leave clues from which we can start to rebuild the extraordinary careers of the characters who would figure largely in Alfred's later life. Foremost amongst these sea wolves must come Ragnar, the first real Viking personality to emerge from the hazy accounts of the period, but a man who belongs more in the pages of legend and saga than amongst the more sober entries in the chronicles. That there even was a Ragnar is still a matter of some debate, due not least to the eagerness of contemporary writers to kill him off, something which is dutifully recorded a number of times at a number of dates and accompanied by a number of different reasons. He first sails out of the realm of Norse mythology and into something like history in 845, the year that Bishop Eelstan was fighting Vikings on the River Parrot. At that time, a leader of this name, or perhaps the similar-sounding Ragnall, is recorded as leading a fleet of 120 ships up the Seine to besiege Paris. Here, in one account, his men were beset with a plague of heaven-sent dysentery, and, so the analysts would have it, Ragnar himself succumbed, thus marking the beginning and ending of his career in one event. The problem is that Ragnar then crops up again and again over the next decade, prowling the seas off the coast of Scotland and the Western Isles, before apparently settling in Viking Dublin. Here he once more met his death, around 852, at the hands of other Scandinavians, either in battle or tortured to death, depending on which traditional tale you read. He's recorded dying again at Carlingford Loch at the hands of rivals, then again during a raid on Anglesey, and finally in Northumbria, where he was said to have been thrown into a pit of venomous snakes. Clearly, no one man, not even a Viking hero, could die that many times, and it must be questioned as to which, if any of these Ragnars, were the same person, and which of these were real. To put any flesh on the oft-buried bones of the Ragnar of the Analysts, 
we're forced to turn to what later Scandinavian poets recorded in the saga of Ragnar and the tale of the sons of Ragnar. They are not history in the modern sense, of course, but the dramatic, fictionalised stories of long-dead heroes whose connection to reality might be little more than a name, that essential hook which allowed poets not only to tell a wonderful tale, but also to claim in hushed tones that it was a true one. Theirs is a Ragnar who killed a ferocious dragon and hence won the hand of a beautiful maiden. He's a hero, not a villain, and his sons are, as the runic graffiti in the chamber tomb of Maze Howe on Orkney says, what you would really call men. That these early pirates should become folk heroes is not as surprising as it might at first seem. The currency of the emerging Viking leaders was not bullion, but fame. To command a great army, a Viking leader needed fame. Fame to bring men to his side, fame to persuade them to follow him to danger and perhaps death, and fame to put fear in the hearts of his enemies and his rivals. Reputations made and broke Scandinavian warlords, and tales of their achievement were vital to their success. No doubt these were often greatly exaggerated, even at the time, and then further embroidered with each retelling, so by the era of the saga writers, such leaders had often become impossibly heroic. And of all these heroes, the archetype was Ragnar. It is perhaps hardly surprising, then, that many who followed would be called Sons of Ragnar, a title which was perhaps as much a mark of honour as a statement of genetic fact. If Ragnar represents the first semi-mythical generation of pirate kings, then those of the second generation who emerge around the time of Athelwulf, the king of Wessex's death in 858, are somewhat clearer and more real. In the outline of one in particular, we can at least in part disentangle from later legends the careers of a real Viking warlord. These are the first Vikings to step clear of the initial hysteria of the monastic chronicles obsessed as they were with the arrival of divine vengeance and the terrible desecration of the pagans. And what is interesting is they're not simply black-hearted pirates, not just personifications of the final judgment, but ruthless and practical players in a game of power politics in which Christian kings were also happy, or at least willing, to indulge. A career which perhaps best displays the culpability of the Christian West in the nurturing of the Viking menace is that of Welland. According to Prudentius of Troy, Welland had first appeared around 859 on the banks of the River Somme, where he made camp with his warband. Where he'd come from is unknown, and how he had risen to lead this particular army is equally unfathomable. But arrive he had. The appearance of this sizeable Viking force in Charles the Bull's empire came at a very bad time for the emperor, who was even then considering what to do about another force encamped on the island of Roiselle in the Seine, the base from where they threatened Paris itself. Charles did not look like a man in control of the situation. Not only was he threatened by Vikings on two fronts, but he was increasingly scared of his own people. When a group of peasants between the Seine and the Loire formed their own confederation to attack the Vikings, perhaps despairing of his help, the Carolingians seemed to have taken fright at this cooperative army and sent his own troops against it. Prudentius of Troy notes coldly, but because their association had been made without due consideration, they were easily slain by our more powerful people. Bizarrely, 
Charles was attacking his own people and those who were having the most success against his real enemy. Clearly as frightened of his own ranks as of the Vikings, and perhaps thinking he could set a thief to catch a thief, he then decided to engage in a very dangerous game. He would play the two forces off against each other, offering to employ Welland's men to besiege and dislodge the Wazzle Vikings. Like any good mercenary band, Welland and his men agreed to this, in return for 1,360 kilos of pure silver, around 880,000 silver pennies worth, to be weighed out, as Vikings always insisted, using their own scales and under their own supervision. Vikings were always good businessmen. Charles, however, did not have this sum of money to hand. Indeed, it would take him some considerable time to raise it from taxation, levies on church treasures and tolls on merchants. In response, Welland, not a man to be kept waiting, headed not for the Wazelle, but for the Channel Coast, where he took hostages from the Franks to ensure Charles continued with his revenue raising, before setting off for further plunder in England. The removal of Welland's force to England at least provided some respite for Charles. Indeed, it set the pattern for Viking raiding, whereby England's loss was Francia's gain and vice versa. But Welland would be back. In fact, the Somme Vikings found England somewhat better prepared to repel their attacks than their Frankish neighbours. Landing in Hampshire, Welland attacked and sacked Winchester before any large-scale resistance could be mounted, no doubt to the dismay of the ageing Bishop Swithin. A wise Viking might have then returned to sea, ready to strike again further down the coast, but Welland, no doubt spurred on by such an easy success, headed further inland, giving the Eldermen of Hampshire and Berkshire time to raise the county levies. Vikings rarely worked well when separated by too much distance from their ships, and as they headed back to the Hampshire coast laden with booty from what had apparently been an easy raid, they were intercepted by the combined armies of Hampshire and Berkshire and were routed. Asser noted with barely concealed glee that the Vikings were cut down everywhere, and when they could resist no longer they took flight like women, and the Christians were masters of the battlefield. But if this particular warband was down, it was certainly not out, and Welland and his men managed to reach their ships and sailed back to Francia, although without much of their loot. Here, they finally received Charles's payment, which must have gone a long way to making good the loss, and true to their word, laid siege to the Wazel Vikings. Of course, in the intervening period, the Wazel Vikings had also been busy. Indeed, much as Charles had feared, they'd sacked Paris. But with his own mercenary Viking force in England, he'd proved powerless to stop them. Now, to the howls of the monastic chroniclers, he had to watch his ally Welland's fleet of perhaps 200 ships, reinforced by another newly arrived warband of some 60 ships, sail up the Seine to besiege another group of Vikings, and just hope that whoever came out on top would then persuade whoever was left to leave his kingdom in peace. To make matters worse, whilst the siege continued, Charles was also forced to provide Welland and his men with food and money, to prevent them from simply looting the surrounding countryside. Prudentius of Troy was not impressed with Charles's strategy, and moodily noted in his annal the total cost, another 2,200 kilos of silver, was considerably more than Welland's initial fee. With friends like these, Charles hardly needed enemies. Welland, for his part, continued to do well from the deal. 
The siege soon left the Wazel Vikings starving and disease-ridden, forcing them to come to terms, and he now managed to extract a further 2,721 kilos of gold and silver out of them in return for their release. This bullion, of course, probably had been taken in the first place from the Franks when they sacked Paris, so Welland was profiting from Charles on both sides. Nor was Charles's luck about to improve, as, no doubt to his utter consternation, the first thing the Wazel Vikings did on their release was to join up with Welland. With winter now approaching fast, there was no chance that this army would sail back to Scandinavia, so Charles was forced to allow them to split up into small bands and hope they didn't inflict too much damage on the region around the Seine Basin. Perhaps the only comfort for Charles was that one of these Viking bands chose that winter to sack Mur, where his truculent but weak son, Louis the Stammerer, was staying. Louis, for his part, may even have believed that the attack on his stronghold was orchestrated by his father as a shot across his bows. Charles certainly needed help to keep his rebellious family in check, but if he was doing this using Viking armies, he was playing with a weapon he could barely hope to control, and one which was just as likely to blow up in his face. In fact, by the following year, Charles does seem to have begun to take action, perhaps finally tiring of attempting to deal with his slippery allies. That spring, he raised armies to take position on the Oise, Seine and Marne, threatening the Viking escape routes to the sea. At the same time, he also began work at Pont de l'Arche, downstream from Pitre, creating a fortified bridge crossing that controlled the river and thus effectively gave him the power to open and close it as he saw fit. In response, the Salmonoiselle Vikings, who were no fools and wanted money much more than they wanted a fight, finally agreed to leave his territory and seek out other places to harass. They did not, of course, have to look far, and they soon found employment in the armies of Salomon of Brittany and Robert the Strong of Anjou, who were then at each other's throats. Now it was the turn of Welland's luck to run out, and he found himself at the court of Charles. In the face of this unusual turn of events, Welland remained unflustered, however, and he returned the hostages he'd taken before the Winchester expedition and did fealty to the king as his overlord. He then promised to quit the kingdom and, to seal the deal, offered himself, his wife and his children for baptism. It was only now that Welland ran into trouble, not at the hands of the apparently triumphant Charles, but, like a true pirate, at those of his crew. It seems that by the time he had offered himself up as a supplicant to Charles, he had already been replaced as the leader of his warband, and thus may have found himself politically cornered. His life as a pirate king may seem romantic from the outside, but his restless channel crossing and desperate desire for loot during his tenure as their chief may itself hint at the true nature of the life of a Viking leader. What kept his men together, and kept his position as their leader, was his ability to bring home the loot, month after month, year after year. Within a limited field of operations, he had to weigh up the relative benefits of taking pay from different European dynasts in their wars with other Vikings and with each other, or looting their territories as Vikings themselves. With each raid, of course, the situation changed. Old enemies became allies, allies became enemies, and Welland had to balance this against the relative risks to his men from attack against increasingly prepared defenders and the risk to his own position from not delivering the booty. He had played a dangerous game, and when the money dried up, his mercenary force were more than happy to dispense with his services. This is how Welland found himself kneeling at the feet of his only remaining ally, Charles. It was a practical move by a practical man, 
playing the Christian game of fealty to win protection and support. It did, of course, require that he accept baptism as a Christian himself, but that was not something that usually bothered Viking leaders. Indeed, some converted and then apostatized many times, depending on the direction that the political wind was blowing. But Welland had converted for the last time. Strangely, perhaps aptly, it was not the cynical Carolingian court that called Welland a hypocrite, nor his new Christian godfathers who marked him out as a liar and his conversion as a sham, but one of his own. Several of his crew seemed to have gone with their old leader to the royal court, and they too had received baptism. One of these new converts then took the opportunity to accuse Welland of taking his vows in vain and of converting simply for convenience. It was a slur that could not go unanswered, and one which required a legal response. The legal recourse available at that time in the Carolingian court was not a matter of lawyers and witnesses, however, but a call to trial by battle. In front of Charles and his wife and entourage, Welland and his accuser fell to mortal combat, and hence, in the minds of Christians of the day, put the matter into the hands of God, who would of course protect his own. And it seems he did. Welland was cut down and died on the floor of the royal court, marking the end of one of the first great Viking careers, eliciting few tears from outside the huddle of his own family. Their fate must now have been just as precarious, but they too disappear from the pages of history, along with their protector, at the moment of his death. That was The Interesting Bits, written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by Tian Stewart-Murray.